Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Please Kill Me, the uncensored oral history of punk rock by Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain has sold over 1 million copies and been translated into over 13 languages. Of all the hundreds of people who contributed to the exhaustive tale of sex, drugs, and punk rock, the authors dedicated the book to today's guest. Yes, he deserves the dedication, if only because he signed Iggy Pop and managed the Ramones. But that's just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Bored with Harvard Law School, where he preferred drinking, shoplifting, and fucking around to reading up on cases, he left after one year. Instead, he moved to New York in the 60s and began hanging around with Lou Reed and the Warhol crowd what he calls the cream of the next generation of great gay artists. He has an endless well of stories, and I got him to tell a few about those glorious days when weed was all the rage and Danny was in the middle of the mix. After listening to our talk, you'll want to check out the movie Danny Says to hear more from the godfather of punk rock. Here we are with Danny Fields. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you it's, for having me, Dave. It's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it because I've heard so much about you over the years. You've done name so much. Two, okay. Name what? Name two things <laughs> you've heard. Iggy so, Pop, the Ramones. Oh, okay. Where do we go? I'm proud of them. Okay, so before you were Danny Fields, the legend behind these other legends that I've referred to as well, the guy who hung out, part of the Warhol crowd, New Jim Morrison, signed Iggy Pop and the Ramones, the MC5, and so forth. Who were your idols before you landed into the scene, when you were like a kid in the Queens? Oh, Albert Einstein. I asked my mother early on. I had just, You get, a, I think, an autograph book, and there's a blank page, and it says, who's your idol? And I said, Ma, who's my idol? She said, Albert Einstein. So, like a good Jewish mom. So I put him down. I guess he still is. Yeah, it's a good one. Right, it's a good one. Huh? Yeah. So uh, what, were you listening <laughs> to music then as well as a kid? or how? To... Not looking to music and enjoying it. My father played 10 instruments. So in, in every way, he intimidated me. That was one of them. So I took abortive clarinet lessons in the second grade and stopped when the reed gave me splinters in my lips. And that was it. That was it. <laughs> that was it. He never picked up an instrument after that. Mm, one night, uh, tripping in Hollywood with the sheet music, a picture of Judy Collins on the piano and the view of the whole L.A. bass in front of me, I sat down at a piano and did something. So people came out of their rooms around the balcony and said, I didn't know you could play. And I couldn't. It's like, you know, you can... I can climb rocks when I'm altered chemically. I know I'm not supposed to talk about these oh, things. Oh, yes, you are. Here, where this is what the podcasts <laughs> are all about. This is freedom. So what do you remember as your first passion music? Oh, movie scores. 
At home, there was always a lot of Beethoven and Brahms. Not enough Bach. My parents thought it was dry, quote-unquote. That was another rebellion. But um, movie scores. Like which ones? Oh, Miklos Rosa, The Thief of Baghdad, Jungle Book, uh, Ivanhoe, El Cid. It was brilliant. Every, every movie is a, a symphony. And... You know, Alex North and Dimitri Tiankin, all those so those were the best that was the best music then that you could hear was the music that was written by these great composers in the Hollywood studios. And did you go sneak down to the village? No, well you know I left for college when I was fifteen. You went and, to Penn, yeah, like a, and, our uh, president's alma mater or one of them. Our what? Our president uh, went to Penn. Your president. <laughs> And then I went to Harvard Law School for less than a year. And that was a big folk scene then, around then, right? Harvard Square. The folk scene was down on Harvard Square, the other side of uh, Massachusetts Avenue from Harvard, the graduate schools. But I, I gravitated to Harvard Square and Elsie's and, and uh, the Casablanca and the Brattle theater and Hayes Bickford. And what was that? Was that just sort of like nascent hippies? And Oh, it was just cool gay people who were gay at people? Harvard. Yeah. Oh, and that's, that's what where, I was looking for then. That's where they were hanging out? And then, it, of course, it bled into Boston. And so I had a year of drinking and shoplifting and, and fucking around. I was living in the Harvard graduate dorms, not going to classes, um, playing bridge with the other law school students who were like, no, this is not for me. So I quit, and with a mountain of debt, I not only shoplifted, I charged a great deal. Stories are irresistible. And I came back to New York and for various temporary jobs. Went to NYU graduate school and um, so got a place, uh, an apartment, a hotel room off Washington Square. This is the very early 60s and then started hanging out at the San Remo at the corner of Bleecker and McDougal, which, which was a disguised gay bar. And it was, that was a renaissance. That was a cultural awakening. What was there? Who did you meet oh, there? Oh, Edward Albee and Robert Rauschenberg and Andy Warhol and the cream of the next generation of gay male artists. And when downtown New York was, what was it like back then? It's empty, right? Or- empty. It's empty now. It sucks now. It's the dreariest fucking city I've ever been in. No, it was sort of hopping. If you made friends quickly, you know, I was... 21, 21. <laughs> Ready for action, go, man, go. And um, the, it was, uh, New York was your oyster. So you hadn't really found your niche at this point. Oh, I had. My niche was hosting people from Harvard Square who wanted to spend a weekend in New York and vice versa. But it's someone like a connector in that respect, some, something that today is oh, like I a profession saw... or an influencer, let's call you. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I worked at... Liquor Store Magazine, to enhance my publishing chops. Liquor Store Magazine, about liquor and stores. It's a a trade magazine. (laughs) If you own a liquor store, it's about advertising. You know, we have a new brand of vodka out, and 
that's what it was. It was trade. But it was publishing. It was putting out a magazine with deadlines and typefaces and And you could that. relate to that. You felt that was something more in line with what you were interested well, in. Well, not liquor store. And not but the, the publishing, the, 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 the magazine. Liked, yeah. It was getting making pages. Working with people, having like, uh, you know, the the, no, the people were terrible, and the <laughs> boss was terrible, and I was, um, he was a hunter and a fisher, the guy who owned, he killed things on weekends and brought the corpses in on Monday, and we had to wrap them and put them in a scotch cooler and take them to the advertising agencies as little gifts of trout. <laughs> How nice. Then there was an ad for Teen Pop Magazine Seeks Managing Editor. And I thought it meant pop art because <laughs> since I was hanging out with the Warhol crowd, which was pop art, and then I found out at the first interview it was pop music. A guy was a very wonderful man, actually. Had a teenage service magazine. You know, what to do if you get peanut butter on your prom gown and the right way to meet a cute boy, things like that. Still very relevant I hate my stepmother. Yeah, 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 that's what it was about. And, but he started, this is 64, he started doing Beatles coverage. He was buying stuff from England and putting it in the magazine and seeing that the circulation went up and the 95% of the male was, we want more Beatles, so... And mostly girls, I imagine. Yes, of course. All those magazines were for girls. And I wanted to become a pop music magazine. Pop is what they call, they, they call it in England. They still call it pop. What we call rock or rock. They call it pop, popular music. He wants to do a pop music magazine, so I said, oh, great, because I love Velvet, Under the Velvet Underground, <laughs> but I realized that um, we better stick to pop as in popular. So I bought a copy of Billboard, the music trade, the Bible of the music industry, and for the second interview for this job, I just memorized it from cover to cover. I could do that then. And the charts, and we could talk about anything. And that was in Billboard. And anyhow, he was more than the publisher knew. So I got the job, for which I wasn't really suited. Because I just wanted to do the Velvet Underground. and the So the Velvet birds. Underground was already around. So how did you find them? Where? Well, they were playing at the, the, the village. And then at the factory, they became the factory house band. But so you were going Andy to Wells, the factory then yeah, Almost as well? every day. It was a place of get things done. You know, people were you know, working on churning out silk screens of the flowers or blowing up the balloons or and making movies. And he just got a camera and starts to put people in just a grouping and would make that would become a movie. So and you'd bring people over there talking to would be Lou or Sterling or but Lou, Eva. you're referring to is Lou Reed. Yeah. So how? What kind of guy is he? Because he developed a kind of a reputation for being mean spirited, in, in his later years. Oh, you don't think he was any ever mean spirited? I think he did not, as they say, did not suffer fools lightly. And um, so you were a fan in that. 
Well, as a friend and a fan, Brendan Tollard made a movie about me. Danny says. He researched everything I had, uh, taped a recording with Lou and I sitting in my apartment or his, and I played the, played him the first uh, the Ramones album, Hot Out of the Studio, before it had been released. To Lou. Yeah, and you can hear him laughing and saying, oh, this is great, and he's really, I mean, he's yeah. anything but dismissive or that's true. enthusiastic. No, it's true. So, when, I, I listen, when I watched that movie recently in preparing to meet you, I was struck by that as well because I was not expecting to hear those kind words come out of him. Well, you know, he was <laughs> a friend. He doesn't have to be, you know, a, a wonderful, a, a telling story is that there was a wonderful woman named Anita Sarko. We were all at the same gym, and I said to Lou, Anita's scheduled to interview you next week, and now you've got to be nice because she's family. You know, she's a DJ. She's brilliant. She's wonderful. There she is uh, on the stationary bike, and she's a friend of ours, Lou, so you be nice to her, Okay. And two weeks later, I saw Anita. I said, how did it go? She said, oh, he was so mean. Okay, <laughs> there, there you go. I said, hello. <laughs> they went over to him. I said, this is at the gym, at the printing house gym on Hudson Street. And I said, Lou, I told you to be nice to Anita. And and she said, you were all cold and cynical. And you, he said, well, she pressed the record button, and I had to become Lou Reed. Mm. So I guess that's the explanation. So that was it. I said, Anita, it just he went into a character. That became part of what was expected. I think if you were an editor and you sent a reporter to cover, say, a press conference with Lou, you would want to get back something mean and nasty and snarling and growling and terrifying and intimidating. Okay, so that was it. He knew that he was expected to be this person, and he did with Strangers, he did. And then with friends, of course, he didn't. You can't have friends and be like that. But given, you know, some of the people that you worked with who are most celebrated, it seemed, is that something that you feel like you had an ability to relate to those kind of difficult personalities that no, made I'm, it easier for you? You know, let me just, you know, cite some of them, like Jim Morrison, the Ramones you mentioned, Iggy Pop. Nico. Nico. Jonathan Richmond. I love so much. Famous people are not easy, and it's very difficult to have them as close friends, but it's also very simple to acknowledge that we know you're famous and we're in the same business, so there's no bullshit between us. I understand what the needs are, and you know, be an artist and... Um, let me be a little professional thing sitting on your shoulder who loves you for the right reasons. This is after you were no longer in the yeah, journalism trade. As a reporter, it's sometimes difficult if you're a journalist to be around because they don't trust you fully to behave normally. But once you left that and you became more part of the industry or just in the music business, right? I don't know of anyone who didn't trust me because usually they didn't. And they didn't really believe I worked at a record company and liked them. Like, Aki's first reaction, mm. I couldn't believe that someone from a record company would say, hey, where's your manager? I'm from a record company. So he just kept walking. Thought I was hitting on him. Okay, 1968. So then you find out who each other is. And 
no no performer or nobody with talent has ever dismissed somebody who really liked what they did. You just don't. I mean, it's not. It's they're human. Uh, yes, if they get to know you well enough to yeah, to, to realize that. Yeah, if you're not a jerk and you start to talk to people before they become really famous, Leonard Cohen, for example. We just were friends when he was famous in Canada, not famous in New York, and came to New York at the time of his first record. He was wanted because he'd written Suzanne and Judy Collins had recorded it on her In My Life album, and the song was a sensation. Not a pop hit, but a sensation. It's so a classic. We all know I it today. Leonard and we and I brought him to Max's Kansas City and introduced him. So who was he? Max's Kansas City for the people who may not know. It was a hangout. And it was by day a a restaurant for people who worked in the insurance industry. And at night it was a hangout for the worlds of music and Poets and painters and yentas and faggots and stars and drag queens and Kennedys. And yeah, it was basically the only place to hang out downtown if you wanted to be part of that scene, right? It was, it was the scene in those days. It was the scene. It's not if you wanted to be part. If you, if you were part of it, then you were there. And that's kind of a relatively small number that was represented the scene at that time. A few hundred, would you Yeah, say? a few hundred, yeah. I think, I think at that period in New York, there were probably no more than a few thousand totally what we would call cool people. And then and, and, and someone had said the same thing to me about London. And then suddenly it gets exponential. And Max's Kansas City, for example, becomes too small to hold all the new people in you know, fashion and art and writing and music and like trying so, to get in and be cool like um, patty smith and robert maplethorpe famously like just sort of looking lurking outside wanting to be a part of the crowd yeah and they did it right because they were so good looking <laughs> <laughs> they were um well odd patty was uh, you know not the like a classic beauty no we thought she was we thought they were two boys yeah. that's why donald and i invited them into the back room. Oh, you're it, responsible for that. Oh, God. Would it, if it hadn't <laughs> been, with any of these people you are mentioning, if it hadn't been me, it would have happened anyhow because I didn't, uh, oh, really? I didn't spark them with mm. their talent. Do you I think just, so? Yeah. I don't know. Would you th you feel that way about Iggy Pop oh, yes, and MC, really? That they wouldn't have lingered in Detroit, you know, so very much out of the spotlight. They weren't like in New York, like at CB's where you could imagine you know, someone showing up and finding the Ramones or some, you know. Well, get, there was no CBs in 1968. Right. Okay, so um, there they were, and they were. In Detroit. In Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, sorry. And it was the best music I'd heard since the Velvet Underground. There you go. So uh, I'm not the only person in the world who has said that. But there was more than the music because there was the whole physicality of what they were doing that was very, you know, frightening to a lot of people. And well, I heard the music before I saw the band. I was uh, looking for where they were playing and from going. It was the University of Michigan Student Union, and it's part of the campus in Ann Arbor. And 
Wayne Kramer, the MC5, said, Say, if you liked us, you'll really like our little brother band. They're called the Psychedelic Stooges. Oh, that's a name. Wink, you know, sure. He said they're playing this afternoon right across the street. There's nothing I would rather hear. It's sort of like they were called I, the Psychedelic Stooges. That was yes, the name yes. Yeah. Something I would do not like to hear is that there's a great band in Brooklyn. <laughs> because if you I'm don't going go. that farther, I'd sooner I'd sooner go to Europe. <laughs> uh, just just as difficult and just as easy. And it's better when you get there. But so much for that. So much for Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. I was coming up the staircase looking for the room in which the Stooges were performing, and I heard this incredibly great music, sound. The walls, the floors were shaking. And I didn't see it. And I, so I heard them. I said, oh, this music is pulling me towards it. And when I found the room where they were performing, there was Iggy on stage, so I said, oh, and on top of that, there's a maniac dancing and singing. So it was perfect, but it was the music. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like, I know. Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> I know Iggy, it's Iggy Pop and the physicality. Just, yes, and they were making music. His band was making music he wanted to hear come through and and he danced to the music of his band this is a very great well, thing well he did to, more than dance right he threw well, himself he sang. And, yeah, yes well, but that's i mean dancing. okay do you feel like mick jagger got a lot of his moves it just seems like there's so much of uh, that in, in iggy i don't think mick jagger needed lessons i think iggy saw jim morrison and he saw jim uh, jagger there older than he was, and they were there, and he saw, I don't think he modeled himself, he just did no, what he had he, to he do. No, but he learned, he saw. Know, but yeah. he's so brilliant and so talented and so funny and so smart. Um, talking about Iggy now? Yeah, Iggy. Yeah, so how do you feel, you know, today, I mean, he is great to, to I could listen to him talk. Isn't he smart? Yes, I it's mean, wonderful. I love what he says. And, yeah. I always find it's it very a, inspiring. I know. You think it's going to be, what? Well, oh, my God, it's a rock and roll lunatic. Can't talk <laughs> yes, to this so, person. So how do you, do you, are you surprised that he's turned out to be this, like, gentleman? Oh, I'm surprised that he's alive. Wow, yeah. You <laughs> okay. know, I mean, <laughs> I'm surprised he's survived the, the punishment he's put his own mm, self yeah, through. Yeah, yes, he's broken yeah, so many yeah, bones. Yeah, yeah thrashing about you know one of the other like odd things and you worked with so many famous people that we've mentioned a bunch of them in passing here but one of them is uh, david peel well i was just gonna say you took the words out of my mouth how come how come you're not talking about david peel because yeah. i understand it's a subtext <laughs> of, of it's it's part your... of this like the cannabis thing but i i've i knew david peel from around I, around the park Tompkins square i live over there it seems okay for many years, always rabble-rousing as well, and, you know, being a real activist. I mean, he was very political. Yeah, I wasn't that. It was... And he had I this can't... song, just, uh, you know, what is it, Have a Marijuana? Yeah, that no, was not the name. That is not the name of the song. Okay. Okay. I'll, let me go back Give me the full here. story. Okay. In college, we collected a lot of non-such records. Non-such mm. was yeah. a, an Electra side Label that such. did a lot of world music, yeah. the and beer songs of Bulgaria and, stuff. I loved and it. beer hall music. Oh, yes. yes, I loved it. And the songs of Heidelberg and yeah. and I said to 
Jack Holtzman, the very great, very great man, who was the president of Electra. Why don't? Why isn't there um, a, a marijuana, a dope smoking, a smoking album? Like let's like let's lift up a beer and get <laughs> tanked. Well, those beer songs, you know, it's on. Said, well, it's a good idea, but what would you put on it? And I said, hmm, don't know, but that's a good idea. Okay, and then. Could I stop we, you a quick a second yes. here? So why, does, why did you feel like there was a need for a marijuana album? Was well, there it's just, because there's all these songs about drinking. Oh, it's kind of high. It's and people thing, were smoking. Good, was drink, there a lot drink, of. Drink. But w that was the era of like pot everywhere. It was not. People were just smoking openly and all of that, or how do you remember openly, that? Openly, but not openly. I mean, openly. What does that mean? Like and, today, like in California, or like no, in it's Vancouver. Not like California or, wasn't like today. I mean, this yeah. is like sixty. This is, you know, hundred years ago. <laughs> um, we might as well be, but everybody smoked, and um, it was no secret that everybody smoked pot and everybody and the music, everybody. At enhanced least music, yeah, it was great. I mean, yeah, it's just there. It was there. It was um, okay. So I thought, well, if we have these songs like "Drink, Drink, Drink" from the Student Prince, why can't there be a smoke, smoke, smoke? And I was walking through Washington Square, and there was David Peale, and he was singing "I Like Marijuana," and I thought, this guy's this is great. brilliant lyrics. He's up against the wall. <laughs> I like marijuana. Up against the wall, motherfucker. You like marijuana. I like oh, marijuana. marijuana. We like marijuana. <laughs> this is this is perfect. This is what I was looking for. So I waited for the show to be over, and uh, I thought he's so good. Everyone here must be from a record. I always think that everyone really? here you, must you, be from a record. You really company. felt he was that good. I mean, as a, I thought it was dynamite. But you were smoking at this. <laughs> what were you smoking? As they say, I wasn't smoking anything. <laughs> okay, uh, you really thought Sunday it was a great afternoon. song, and you felt it. I thought this was okay. a catchy anthemic song. It is, and it okay. is right. Okay, yeah. So I I said to on the uh, okay. So I waited for. David and uh, to finish, and I said hello. I'm from Electra Records, and let's go to dinner at Max's, and let me take you to dinner. So he was, that was amazing. I put a filet mignon in front of David Peel, and he's all yours. And we went back to when we watched Lyndon Johnson abdicate. That was the night I can forget the night that Lyndon Johnson mm. abdicated. So we watched that, and the next morning I said to Jack, I think. I think I saw a street singer who maybe could do this, you know, smoke, smoke, drink, drink, get high album. So the next Sunday when David was playing, Jack met me in Washington Square. He lived on 12th Street between 5th and 6th. So it was simple. Always easy when something is near, you know? Yes. You don't have to go to Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> And because if I was having to go to Brooklyn, I don't think I would have asked him to come. Yeah, I don't think no, Iggy, come. no. It's a Sunday <laughs> and for David Peel. Uh, Ann Arbor's better. You know, Ann Arbor was, at least you get on a plane. There's no plane to Brooklyn. Fuck it. It's so hard to get there. Where is it? Okay. <laughs> it's over the bridge, but yes, go on. I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. Okay. I'm from Brooklyn, too. And Jack came and saw them and said, this is really good. And I think if we recorded them live... Everybody wants to record live because it's way cheaper than hiring a studio, and you don't do a lot of retakes. It's live, okay? 
We should record them live in Washington Square. So he assembled a production crew with Peter Siegel and Al Ming. And Peter Siegel was a producer at a lecture, a very a wonderful, wonderful person. And they took electricity from the lampposts and brought an agra down the next weekend and recorded the whole thing. And it became... There was the album. Now, what do you call the album? I we didn't have a title for it, but here's what happened. It's so perfect. There was a yippee, what were they called? Yippies, some demonstration. Okay, and it was at Grand Central Station. Time Magazine hmm. covered it. Yeah, the yippies. Okay, yeah. and it said, Abby Hoffman and all that. Yeah, yeah, and it said, and the Time Magazine reporter misheard David's singing, I like marijuana, and David had a bit of a speech uh, flaw, impediment. And his, I marijuana, you like that. And the guy said, and the hippies, yippies flooded into Grand Central sta Station singing, and I'm reading Time Magazine, have a marijuana. Now, this is not English. This is not anything. <laughs> no one has ever said that in the history of the world, but there it was in Time Magazine. And I thought, this, it's typo. What do you call if you mishear something and you then transcribe it as you heard mm -hmm. it? A mistake. I said, here's the title of the album, Have a Marijuana. Because. Perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. It's not English. It's not a locution. It's you perfect. Say that. It's someone who doesn't know anything about weed yeah. would say that, perhaps. And so they did it with. And I wanted the words very big on the cover and the art director who was opposed to the whole idea of it. So, okay, I wanted kids to bring it home and just leave it sitting there and their parents would drop dead of a heart attack and they'd have the house for the weekend. <laughs> I figured there have to be. And it sold a lot of records. It did, it yeah, really it did. So what else was on the album? Albums. No, really? Um, what else was, yeah. And... Who came next into Washington Square that who wanted to was John and Yoko. Don't forget. Mm. They picked up on David. That's right. You're right. They just moved to that. the village. They moved to Bank Street and were seeking a cultural point. So that I mean, it was kind of absurd. There they were looking at the and of course there was a train of looked like this John and Yoko, so like 60 people following them. They'd walk from one folk singer to another and it was Sunday in Washington Square and then this crowd would follow them. And he did pick up on, on David long after I'd been working at Electra and they started to make a new album, but it kind of fell apart. But still... Yeah, no, so, that's, that's know, a great so. moment. It should have like a Haver Marijuana website or something like to, to uh, you know, it should be part of it. I well, like that. I mean, they I like must. that Haver Marijuana. Because, you know, now, you know, the marijuana term is no longer, you know, acceptable. It's not politically correct because it has the connotation of the Mexicans and it was, it was given to cannabis by Anslinger when they were trying to you know, make it it's racist connotations yeah. to the whole thing. So today, um, I'm, of course, people are still using the word, but as you may have noticed, cannabis has become the, the term for Well, it. I know, but it's marijuana. I mean, come by on. Any other name, right? By any other name, I mean, really. Let's talk about Nico for a minute. Mm, anytime. You know, I said before that if people, if I hadn't come upon some of these artists, 
someone else would have. It would have happened. So I try to think, what was I responsible for any particular thing that I could say? And it was her album for a lecture with John Cale producing the Marvel Index. Just the 25th anniversary of it was a big deal in the, you know, like Mojo Press, things like that. Mm -hmm. And now it's getting on to the, it's the 50th. Holy shit. And 1968 again, and John and John Cale and Nico, who had worked together in the Velvet Underground, of course, came went into studio and the Electric Studio in Los Angeles came out with this masterpiece that was it was a hundred years ahead of its time then, and a hundred years it'll be a hundred years ahead of its time. So I'm thrilled with that. And Nico is. Nico is very beautiful and a dear friend. And, and misunderstood. I mean, even recently, I find she's getting a lot more acclaim. A lot. She's very famous. This She's really big now, much bigger than she ever was. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Right. No, I was just going to ask you what you what would you attribute that to? Her magic, her mystery, her genius, her songwriting. Her first solo album, um, my first solo records were with... Brian Jones in England, and she did a Bob Dylan song, I'll Keep It With Mine. And her first solo of Chelsea Girls was all the songs of her boyfriends, Jackson Brown and Lou Reed and Bob Dylan. But I heard her songs that she was writing, and they were so amazing. And so I brought her up to Electra, and she performed, sat on the floor of Jack's office with her harmonium and and Jack said, well, you know, I'm sure there's something there. Uh, get me John Cale on the phone, <clears throat> which is what I think Clive Davis said when he first heard Patti Smith. And what Warner Brothers said when they first heard The Modern Lovers was get me John Cale. Because mm. he was a professional musician. He was a great genius. He could reproduce an orchestra for the cost of one musician himself and he was familiar with the studio and he was good with outsider i would say talent and not quite ready for well the, the velvet underground like sort of prepared him for well his his else. early i mean the velvet prepare him he came to the velvet underground prepared as a trained musician but working, I, what I meant was working outside his, you know, classical training. And do you feel like she didn't get the, the the recognition because of her boyfriends and the fact that she was always like the girl? And she was a junkie and she was a girl and she was Junkies mysterious. didn't prevent people from becoming famous. Well, but. they prevent themselves. Yeah. And and she was famous yeah, and, she in was. a limited way. But now that she's, I should say, safely gone from this world we walk in. She's, just this year, there was a play uh, in Edinburgh. There was something in Berlin where some, I don't know, it's, it's reenacted. There's, of course, the greatest book is our- Did you wrote one? Nico, The End, or also called Songs They Don't Play on the Radio by James Young, who was her keyboard player. And it's just one of the best rock and roll books mm. ever written. And the other best one is called Jamon Ramon, the oldest brother. And he, he classically trained musician. He wrote symphonies for sewing machines. 
and his four of his younger brothers stole his most brilliant ideas and started a band called the Ramones, and that's what the book is. Wow. So uh, when did you find that out? The writer sent it to me. But it's not, is it true or fiction? But it could be true. Okay, good. No, because you're scaring me. I thought that there was some hidden story that I didn't no, know about. No, no, no. It says, you know, this is dedicated to, you know, okay. any person stupid enough to think it's true. Okay, so. thank you. <laughs> not you. I made it. I mean, no, no. Um, of course it's not true. Of course they weren't brothers. No, but I, okay. it takes that conceit further. And... So when you first saw them, did you think they were brothers, no, or did you? Of no, you knew right away it was just yeah, well, the name I, of the band. Yeah, it was the name of the band. I thought it was very cool that they took the same last name. It makes it as easier. a concept. You feel that they had a concept oh, coming absolutely. out, right? Yeah, of course. And and people don't realize that they like sort of like an art band, even though they were you know very pop and just playing these short, hard rock songs. Well, yeah, I was afraid you'd say that because that's the, that's the current. Mm. Wisdom, received wisdom, is that they were an art band. Okay, tell me. Well, they were, they made a decision to call themselves by the same last name and to wear a similar wardrobe, yeah. leather jacket. So did the know. Beatles and a lot of bands yeah, in those so days. Yeah, so did a lot of bands. The Beatles had to wear suits and ties. I mean, that was kind of dorky. Brian Epstein. Well, what the Ramones did, any kid today could wear that. And if the person were cool. Didn't you buy them those cool. jackets? No, they had them. Oh, they had them? They lived. That's what they wore. That's what they wore oh, in real life. Yeah, because so I heard they, the story that after they got whatever, some money, that they bought their jackets. No, no. I mean, they, they bought, may have bought better ones okay. or newer ones, but they wanted to be as famous as the New York Dolls. Who weren't very famous. Well, in New York. In New York, yeah. We're from, we're, we're from New York. You know, if you're from New York and you're from Queens and you go to New York, and New York appears to be the center of the universe, and Roxine Magazine, which is the Bible of that world, was, and was covering all these bands. That was, were you on there too, right? Was that with, right yeah. scene with Lisa, right? Yeah, with Lisa, with Lisa and Richard Robinson and Lenny Cape. It um, was hilarious, wonderful magazine that was mostly pictures and captions. Genius, yeah. And so easy to read. And also I had wonderful written written columns. Donald Lyons was the movie critic. Lenny Kay wrote a Doc Rock column about, you know, guitar strings and Wayne County wrote how to, about how to be a drag queen. There was like really substantial writing. So when you saw the Ramones, was that like their first show there or Not one of their all. first? No. They so nobody been, had really responded the way you did at that I think time. there were, you know, I think, I think there were other people who liked them. They wanted, they wanted me because, they wanted me to like them because I had a weekly, let's face it, I had a weekly column in the Soho weekly news and i would tell people who's playing this weekend and you know what's hot and where to go and i was a great fan of the band television one of the great bands of all time and of patty smith and they were performing in cb so i would write mm -hmm. was richard hell was in there mm -hmm. no richard hell yes yeah. yeah and this is the original television yeah. it's 1974 just when the dolls were breaking up, 74, 75. And the Ramones wanted to be in my column. You know, Johnny would say, 
why is he writing about us? You know, and Tommy would call me and beg me to come and see them. We know you're going to like us. Uh, I had no idea who they were. Um, were you going to CBs then already? Yeah, I was going to CBs to see the other band, television, the television, and Patty, and you know, just going there. But I had not seen them, and so come and see us. You know, you're really going to like us. So the other bands that you were talking about, they didn't tell you you got to see the Ramones, or there was no buzz otherwise. Like people, because sometimes nobody told me until. I was working, I was the editor of 16 magazine then for, you know, we were doing the Bay City Rollers. And the Lisa Robinson was, I think, her column was in the Post then. And so she was also being barraged and harassed, you know. It's one of the Ramones, you know, I had to have my calls intercepted because I didn't want to hear them begging, you must come and see us. Lisa and I decided one night she would, there was another band that was, please come and see us. So she said, Gee, I'll go see these Ramones, get them out of the way. You go see the other band. And the next day, then we'll talk the next day and let's see if we can, what we can say to them. We had a similar taste then. And the next day she said, you're going to love these guys. They're all the songs are really short. They're funny. They're tuneful. They're great. They're cute. You'll love them. And so I said, next time he called, okay, I'll come and see you. And, of course, I loved them instantly. Instantly you asked you wanted to work with them. Yeah. Same, same said, night. Same night. They said, well, you're going to write about us? And I said, oh, I want to be a manager. Wow. You were smitten. Yeah. It didn't take long. It That's was great. just amazing. And who was the other band? No one remembers. I don't remember. <laughs> I went to see them. I don't go to see them. I go to see someone I don't. Well, sometimes I do. Yeah. I saw a great band in London because they were opening for another band, a band called False Heads. It's a wonderful, wonderful rock and roll band in London now. Hmm. And they were opening, and we got there early, and so they were playing, and I wow, what a great band. They st they still, they're still rock and roll. It's just hard and fast. They're still rock and, and roll. I know, there is. I was at uh, this uh, th anniversary party for Max Fish, the bar yeah. on the Lower East Side, and they had these band, like this hard rock band down in the basement, like where everybody just standing around. Yeah. It was beautiful. They were just making some fantastic noise. I was loving it. Why don't people something... invite me? To the, I'll go to the Lower really? East okay. Side. Brooklyn is yeah, nice. No, I'll be happy to invite you. I, uh, there's something great about hearing loud music. Just I the fact it. that it's oh loud is so exciting. It's so loud. There's nothing else you yeah. can do. So this was like that. Oh, I like it to fill me up from top to bottom. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you very much for sitting with me on this hot New York day. Danny Fields. It's great fun, David. This was look, great. We look. never even got. We did get to the Ramones. Yeah, I got to make sure we got there. But there's so much. So and you know, people can go see your movie. Danny says. And, it's not my movie. It's Brendan Toll. Well, you're movie. you're the star of the movie, Another so you know how it is. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you. Once thank again. you. This was great fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm -hmm.